Hello. Just a quick note to say that there were some audio issues with this podcast that we are unable to fix. That means that the audio quality is not quite where we would like it to be. However, the information is excellent and I still think well worth listening to. Enjoy. Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Christina Spaulding, and this is the Research Bites podcast brought to you by Science Matters Academy of Animal Behavior. We foster conversations about science and its application to animal training and behavior in an effort to improve well-being for animals and the people they live with. Please enjoy geeking out about the science of behavior. I just wanted to jump in to let you know about an opportunity that is coming up. I teach an advanced consulting practicum. It only opens twice a year for new students, and I only take four students at a time. The practicum runs for six months, and we meet once a week just to discuss cases. So this is perfect for you if you are already at an intermediate to an advanced education and experience level, and you're just looking for something more. If you are interested, you can go to my website, www.sciencemattersllc.com, and select the drop-down professional courses for the advanced consulting practicum. And there you can get more details about the practicum, as well as information on completing the application. I'd love to see you there. Hello, everyone. Today, I have Dr. Tammy McLean with me. Tammy McLean is a PsyID. She is a licensed clinical psychologist who has 27 years of experience administering and evaluating a wide variety of personality, intelligent, and aptitude psychological tests. She is an innovative and understanding professional proficient in mental health and therapeutic interventions protocols. In addition, she has expertise in ADHD and PTSD and is well-versed in providing strategic direction and ongoing leadership to academic programs. She obtained her certification in dog training from Catch Canine Trainers Academy in 2022 and is the owner of Positive Attitude Dog Trainers in Northern West Virginia, where she provides obedience training and behavioral consultation. Thank you so much for joining me today, Tammy. Thank you for having me. No problem. So we met, just a little backstory about us. We met at the APDT conference in October, and I had been for a little while looking for someone I could talk to that had expertise in working with people and knowledge of the dog training world. Because one of the things that comes up most often when talking to clients is the challenges of working with people. And some of the challenges we deal with are kind of unique in terms of of what we're working with when we start getting involved in these family dynamics, even when maybe we don't want to. And what I wanted to start off with before we get into some of the more specific questions is how do you feel that your background in psychology helps you when working with dogs and their families? Well, one of the things that got me interested in 
working with dogs actually was I was watching episodes of It's Me or the Dog with Victoria Stilwell and was as I watched thought this is exactly what we do when working with parents and kids Mm -hmm. Um, because there's a lot of there's a lot of overlap in terms of well one was just basic learning theory and how it was applied but then watching some of the struggles that she had sometimes with the people that she was working with were very similar to the ones that we had when we were working with parents of of children and so there was a lot of there was just a lot of overlap there that really kind of got me interested in really examining the field a little bit more and as I've been working with with clients and working with their their pets I've seen a lot of the same similarities come up Um, a lot of the same kinds of of concerns amongst the the owners that I've saw with with parents some of the same kinds of behaviors that that they would exhibit like negativity toward their their pet Mm. or you know labeling behaviors and so looking at using some of the same techniques that I would use with parents um, with the pet owners has been really effective for me. Yeah, that's great. I can only imagine that it must be a huge advantage to have that background. And yeah, I'm just trying to think of where to start because there's so many different directions we can go. But do you want, can you give maybe a couple examples of some of the techniques you might use with the caregivers of dogs when maybe they're like labeling their dogs with negative labels? A lot of times what I'll do is just reframe the label that they've used. So, you know, that they, when they talk about this is a, a bad dog or it doesn't listen, mm-hmm. well, you know, I'll talk about, I'll, I'll reframe that to being an independent dog or an intelligent dog who's able to figure out how to make the environment work to their advantage or things that, that are less negative towards the dog as an individual and more helping them to recognize that this is a, this is a system kind of a problem that we can change parts of the system and it will change the way the dog responds. And sometimes you have to do that a few times. But generally what ha- I found is that if every time they say something negative, I reframe it into something positive, that eventually they start using the same language that I'm using and start making the problem something specific that we can address rather than a global problem that is beyond anyone's help. Right. And that's really important, right? Because if, if they think that it's this inherent trait that the dog has, then that will impact their belief about how much change is possible. Whereas if we talk about it, you mentioned systems, and I I assume what you're talking about there is family systems and the interactions between different aspects of the family, which would in this case include dogs, and how we can tweak those types of interactions and relationships in ways that can end up changing behavior. Right. Correct? Exactly. Yeah. So I, yeah, I think that's a great point that you made about being open to the fact that these behaviors can change because sometimes people don't, I mean, they've hired us, right? So they must have some degree of hope <laughs> about what can happen, but there might not be a lot. And so sometimes we're starting with, you know, a really low bar in terms of what people think is possible. Right. Right. Often they see the dog as being hopeless or they see themselves as being hopeless to be able to do anything to change it. So when we do something very simple that creates a behavior in the dog, they'll oftentimes feel like it's magic. Yes, you do that. That's amazing. Being able to to take the mystery out of it, to break things down for them, to show them that they actually are doing some of the things that you would have advised them to do in the first place helps to give confidence. Because I think it's a combination. It's kind of the interplay between how much confidence that they have, that they can have an impact 
and mm-hmm. and then the knowledge of what to do to have that impact it, right. it's going to be the most the, the be- most beneficial and what we want is a high level of confidence and a high level of knowledge and so we we can actually address both of those things as we're interacting with them right yeah yeah that's great and, and i i had one client many years ago who is actually interesting is because she ended up probably making more progress with her dog than just about any of my other clients but she had a dog that was extremely reactive on leash and you know this dog would react like completely lose her mind lose control of herself from you know across like the outfield of a baseball time, like the whole thing. And it would take her several minutes to recover. And when we initially started working together, we were meeting at a park and the client was not comfortable going more than, I don't know, maybe a hundred yards from her car because she wanted to be able to retreat to the car if another dog came by. Mm -hmm. And she talked about, um, we actually became friends, but she talked about what a huge difference it made in her life to have the confidence. She said, you know, knowing what to do and seeing it work really increased her confidence. And that was a really big piece of the process of seeing improvement in her dog. Right. I, I think a lot of times um, people don't realize how much impact their emotional state has on their dog's emotional state. And so yeah. they unwittingly um, create more stress and, and anxiety in the dog um, because of their own stress and anxiety. And sometimes it's more their stress than it is the dog's stress. So you're right, giving them, giving them tools that they can use, helping to point out what things they are doing and, and really kind of giving some confidence to them that they ha- they have the ability to do this. It's not something that's magical. It's something that can be broken down into small steps. I think can be really helpful for people. Yeah, yeah, I think that's great. I don't know if you know Veronica Boytel and Gina Ferris, but they run Dog Biz and they do business consulting for dog professionals. And one of the things that they talk about being really important is having that quick win with a client that you give them something pretty easy that they can do and see success with. And then that helps them buy into the process in the long run. Because we have a tendency, I think, a lot of dog trainers have a tendency to go in and tell the client all of the things. Right. And then they just become totally overwhelmed. Right. And, and I'm thinking of, you know, the comparison between therapy with humans. Like you would never try and teach the <laughs> client everything they needed to know at the first couple of sessions. Right. I think the other thing that's important to remember is that, you know, ambivalence in the process is natural. You know, yeah. in, in anything that we're going to change, we always have a little ambivalence that goes along with it. You know, kind of like I want to learn to play the piano, but, you know, I really don't want to put in all that practice time or I want right. to eat healthy, but I really want that donut. And, yeah, you know, and the, the people we work with are, are similar. They want their dog to behave, but. You know, they're ambivalent for a lot of reasons as to whether or not they can do what needs to be done to be able to get that dog to, to do what they're asking of it. And so recognizing that they're coming from that place, I think helps, it helps you to be able to make a connection with them because we've all felt that, that ambivalence at times. And I, and it helps them to feel like they're, they're not being judged for that, Mm -hmm. um, to recognize that it is going to be something that they're going to deal with and, um, the, the good thing about that is that we 
that ambivalence levels or, or readiness for change yeah. changes over time. And we can have some influence on that. So we can actually do things that will in, or make them more ready to make those changes and help overcome some of the things that have kind of held them back in the past. I love that for so many reasons. I, it never occurred to me. I mean, I think I knew it, but I never just made that connection between working with people professionally that ambivalence is a natural part of the process. And I think that's really important for dog professionals to hear because one of the things that comes up really frequently when talking to dog professionals is lack of confidence that they have in themselves. And I think it's really easy when you see that ambivalence, it's really easy to take that personally and right. to think it reflects on your skills or that they don't like you. And understanding that that's a normal part of the process, I think, is super helpful. Yeah. And I think especially when you're a new trainer and you're just starting out, you know, there's there's so much more you can learn. But what I think you find in any profession is the more you know, the more you realize what you don't know. Yeah. So, you know, over time you get comfortable with not knowing things yes. and, and just know that you have the, the resources and the skills to be able to try to find those things out. But I think that when you're first starting out, you feel like you have to have all the answers and you often have kind of an imposter syndrome where you, know, mm-hmm. you, you feel like you're, you're kind of faking it or that the things that you, if you learned them, anyone could learn them. And so they don't seem unique or special in some way. And I think right. being able to recognize that, you know, you're going to have those, those insecurities, but that also, you know, that the client is as well. And, you know, cause what we tend to think, at least what I have thought at times is like, you called me, <laughs> you wanted me to do something to help you and I'm here to help you. And now you're like, Oh, I don't really know if this is going to work. And, and not taking that personally, I think as right. you pointed out is really important. Yeah. And, and I think that brings us to one of the topics that I, I was really interested in talking to you about. And one of, again, one of the most common things that I hear from professionals is that they're working with a client that is showing high levels of ambivalence and they may be showing it verbally or maybe just through their behavior in the sense that they're not following through on the training plan or maybe they, they're, wanting to use punishments and we're trying to, you know, convince them that we should be using positive reinforcement or there, you know, there's any number of ways that they could be resistant. And I'd like to spend some time talking about how we deal with that. And one of the techniques that I know just a tiny bit about, really only enough to ask you about it because I want to learn more and I think it could be useful in this situation is something called motivational interviewing. And my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, my understanding of motivational interviewing is it's a way of having a conversation with the client to sort of guide them in figuring out what their own motivations are for behavior change. Does that sound accurate? Yes. And then Kind of more than that, it's helping to increase those motivations by by guided questioning, by some of the things that you can you, you can focus in on. It helps them to not only find out what motivates them, but find out what could create more motivation. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a it's a great approach. It works very well for a lot of things. You know, if you're a parent of a child, if you're a parent yeah. of a pet. If you're working with colleagues, the same kinds of things can help. 
Um, and what it is, is a very collaborative relationship. So rather than going in as an expert, you're going in acknowledging that, that that pet owner knows more about their individual pet than you do. And so you're, you're forming a team with them that together we're going to do what we need to do to help this, this animal or this dog be able to do to be more successful in the home or in the environment. And so you frame it as a collaboration, but then what you're trying to do is sort of draw out ideas and solutions from the client and give them reasons and potential methods for changing the behaviors that they're engaging in. So it it's kind of, you know, sometimes people say, well, if you make it seem like it's their idea, but it's a little bit more than that because we have the knowledge of what things they can do that will be effective. And oftentimes they have either incomplete or inaccurate understanding of how things work. And so we can mm -hmm. provide information, but not do it in the way of I'm the expert, you should listen to me, but more of a collaborative. Well, have you considered this? I know sometimes people find that when they do these things, or I found that when I work in this particular way, I get these, these types of results. We can give them some, some potential skills that they can then say, okay, or yeah, that, that makes sense. And I'm, I can try that. And so it, it kind of gets them on board because I think that that is a big part of that. It's that feeling confident enough that I can do this. And so if mm -hmm. you can give them a way that they can identify what they're willing to do and, and have it be something that you know is going to be helpful for them, it can help, you know, because ultimately they're, they're the one with the dog. They're the one that's going right. to have to do the things. All we can do is provide our expertise in that moment. And then set them up, just like we would set up a dog for success. We want to set the, the owners up for success to be able to continue to do that while we're not there. Right, right. Yeah, that's great. So so how would that look? Like if, if you're working with me and I'm your client and I'm and you're suggesting that I bring food with me on walks and I don't want to do that. And I'm saying, well, that you know, I you know doesn't work. I've I've tried that before. He won't take food. I, I keep forgetting it. I don't want him to get fat. You know, how would you, understanding that no one is going to learn how to do motivational interviewing in a brief podcast episode, how could you use some motivational interviewing techniques to talk to that client that's being very resistant about taking food on walks? Mm -hmm. So one of the things that, that I do a lot of is asking open-ended questions just to try to gather more information. I, I like to, before I work with anyone, whether it's human or for an animal, I want to know as much as I can. So I want to know what have you tried before and mm -hmm. how have you tried it and how effective has it been? Because I don't, because suggesting doing something that they've already vetoed right up front can be really, it, it can actually go against them being willing to even trust that you're, you even listen to them, much less that you uh -huh. know what you're doing. And right. so I want to make sure that they know I hear what they're saying and I hear not just the, the words they're saying, but the emotion underneath of it, mm -hmm. the, the frustration that they feel or the hopelessness that they feel that I've tried all these things and none of these things have worked. Um, I think being able to ask open questions. What does it look like? Can you, can you tell me about what happens when you're doing X, Y, and Z? Or how does your dog react when these things happen? And so an open-ended question is really just a question that they can't answer with a yes or a no. Right. Something that they have to elaborate on. And so by getting that information, you know, tell me more about that. That helps you to get 
enough data that you can use. And then you can also start listening for what are the things that you can affirm? What are they doing well? What, where is their thought process on target with what you know from, from the, the research and the literature? And so you don't want to come in saying, okay, well, I know you've tried it before, but you've just been doing it wrong. <laughs> right? And if you just do it my way, it'll work. So yeah. you, know, you look for, all right, I, I hear what you're saying. Here's some of the things that I think about the situation or experiences that I've had or that my clients have had. And then, you know, it sounds like you're doing these things that mm-hmm. are exactly what I would suggest that you do. What if we tried this and then demonstrate for them so that they can actually see that what you're talking about and how it's working? Because oftentimes the way we define things is very different right. than the way they do. So when we talk about positive reinforcement, they're oftentimes thinking bribery. Right. Bribery. Right, right. Yep. And so, you know, the other thing I do a lot of times is put it into, you know, a human perspective. Like, you know, if how long would you continue to go to work if there wasn't a right. involved? You know, I, I know we want we want our dogs just to do it because they love us. Yeah. But, you know, they're they're sentient beings and they they do what's best for themselves. And so mm-hmm. helping them to see that I think is important. You know, and sometimes I won't start with with like treats if that's something they're adamantly against. I'll say, well, okay, let's try some other things. And then sometimes I can build enough rapport with them that they're willing to trust me and then try them later. But if I would insist immediately, no, you have to do it this way, then mm-hmm. they're going to they're going to spend all their effort and energy thinking of the yes buts, you know, yeah. and thinking of reasons to go against what I'm saying. If I can kind of join them where they're at, sometimes I can then sort of lead them the direction that I want them to go. And that can be really helpful. And sometimes we just get, frankly, kind of rigid ourselves. I just had a a client who she called me and she said, well, we had another trainer and they wanted us to say yes when the the dog did something. And I don't want to say yes. I want to say good boy. And I said, (laughs) okay, then good boy. (laughs) This is is what we're trying to do. It doesn't matter what you say as long as what you say is consistent. And she was right. like, okay, then. So yeah. now she's willing to work with me because I, I wasn't too rigid with what words she chose to say. Right, right, right. And I think we forget sometimes that, you know, we acquire knowledge and oftentimes we acquire it slowly over time so that it doesn't, it doesn't seem like it was that big of an effort when we look back on it because we forget yeah. what it was like not to know things. And, and we, we don't realize that sometimes our clients really just don't have that foundational knowledge that we kind of take for granted. And so being able to look for the things that they're doing well, ask the questions to pull out information, kind of summarize what they're saying, you know, mm-hmm. and, and a lot of times too, if we, if we look at, well, what have you been trying and how well is it working? And if we don't, if we don't do anything different, what's likely to happen in the next year, two years, you can get them to say, you know, well, what's the, what do you have to lose? By yeah. trying a different approach or trying it this way. Um, and sometimes that helps when they start to look at it more long term. It's like, okay, you're right. It hasn't worked before, but maybe if I did it a different way, something would help. Yeah. So it sounds to me, I, I mean, first of all, it sounds like a lot of listening, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so instead of us focusing so much on telling the client what we think they should do, it's really 
listening and then maybe almost sort of sidestepping around what our original plan was and finding a different path to hopefully end up in the same place instead of sort of bulldozing our way in the direction that we want to go. Right. It's kind of like the difference between pulling a mule and going alongside it with the carrot out in front, you know? Right. We The more we pull, the more resistant people get. And so that's one of the things that's a sign for us. If, we, if they start to resist, that's a good sign to stop and listen. There's something you're missing that, that is why they're, they're resisting what you're saying. And it's more like kind of going along beside them and then just sort of taking them with you for the ride. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, sometimes I think we get, if they would just listen to us, we could fix right. the problem. <laughs> right. Yes. Um, but, you know, we, we, if we stopped and thought about it, we don't do very well when someone comes in and just tells us what to do. Yeah. You know? We often get kind of resistant or you don't even know the situation. How can you come in here and tell me? So I, I, I right. do think there's a lot of that that is involved in listening, thinking through what, putting yourself in their shoes. What would it, how would you respond or how would you feel if you were in that situation? And just sometimes just being able to recognize and acknowledge the concerns they have, the frustrations they have, the, the fear they have about what's going to happen. Yeah. is enough to build the rapport that then they're more likely to listen to what you're saying. And yeah, I really can emphasize that rapport enough that right. even in therapy, what with people, what we find is that it's not the level of skill of the therapist. It's the quality of the relationship between them that really has yeah. the, the biggest impact on change. One of my students who I know is going to listen to this podcast, <laughs> she recently made that point. And I actually disagreed with this is a little bit of a side note, but I just I actually disagreed with her a little bit about that because I said, well, you know, there it is. We do have data that there are certain therapeutic techniques like, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy that have a lot of evidence behind them. And so in some cases, the technique really does matter. But I think I should I'm I'm taking this as a learning moment for myself that, you know, it's that that relationship also really matters a lot. And it's we focus on the relationship with the human and the dog so much. I'm trying to think if I've how much I've heard people talk about building relationship and rapport between the trainer and the human client. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a really excellent point. And the good thing is it's something that's easy to do. You know, yeah. we or interact with humans all the time. We can use things that we've learned just in our everyday lives in terms of how they interact. And I think the problem is like as I was saying about imposter syndrome sometimes for people, they get in their mind, like, I have to be this this persona. You know, mm-hmm. I, I have to be confident. I have to be knowledgeable. And I have to go in there and fix this problem. And and those are important. You definitely yeah. need to be confident and you need to have skills. But you aren't really the one that's going to fix the problem. You're the one that's going to guide the person who's actually going to do the work. You know, because you're going to maybe spend an hour a week with them and they're going to have the other however many hours there are in the rest of the week. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. And I have a similar question and it it might be the same answer, but maybe you have some additional tips. And this is a question from a student who is asking about talking to a client who's really highly focused on their perspective of 
sort of anecdotal information and emotions, and they aren't really open to or able to receive sort of the scientific evidence that you were trying to present to them. And so you end up having this dynamic where you have the one person that's citing all the facts and the research and the science and the other person that's still, you know, sort of just focusing on their emotions and their perspective. Is that basically the exact, like, would you handle that the exact same way that we just talked about? Or are there additional things that you might do in that situation where there's this big, it's like you almost aren't even having the same conversation? Mm -hmm. One of the things that I would probably do after after making sure I get where they're coming from is Mm -hmm. really kind of summarizing for them. So what happens is sometimes people get very caught up in their emotions and they Mm -hmm. have a difficult time listening to anything that doesn't really fit with them, fit with what they, they believe. And so oftentimes I would summarize what, what I, I'm hearing them say and make sure, first of all, that I'm hearing it the way that they mean it. And then, then kind of put it back to them that, so what next? Okay. So this is the problem as you've defined okay. it. Yeah. What's next? And, and kind of help redirect them back to focusing in, you know, those are the people that I probably wouldn't try to go over the evidence quite so much because they're not open to hearing it. So, you know, you work with what you've got to work with. And if they're very focused on the emotions, then you, you give them emotional examples, but from the dog's perspective. Okay. They're very empathetic oftentimes, or they're very focused on their own feelings. And sometimes yeah. helping them to start seeing that dogs have feelings, that, that right. dogs' reactions to things are as a result of those feelings sometimes can help shift their viewpoint just a little bit. Yeah, that's great. I love that. And I I remember, I wish I had it in front of me, but I don't. But I remember there's a couple books that I've read by physicians and they make some points and I'm not going to remember their names right now, but (laughs) I can maybe go back later and put it in the podcast notes. I think one of them is Atul Gawande. They talk about how sometimes with the doctor-patient relationship, the patient comes in, you know, very upset, very worried, very scared about something. And the doctor's response is to sort of bludgeon them with data. Mm-hmm. And they talk about how it took them a while to realize that that's not really what the person needs in that. What the person needs in that moment is like reassurance and empathy. And I know that really resonated with me because that is my tendency is, you know, I, I tend to respond to problems with data. Mm-hmm. And even though that probably works really well for certain individuals, uh, there's a lot of individuals that it's just not, you just can't get through with that approach when you're in a very, you know, emotionally charged place. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, we, we tend to go back and forth between the emotional responses and then more of a cognitive response. And mm-hmm. that's why I think it's important to to listen, to hear what they're saying, to recognize it, and summarizing it as a way to help them know that they've been heard, and then shift the question from what are you experiencing to what are you going to do about it, or what can we do about it? And that shifts them their, their thinking patterns from internal to more, more cognitive, more planning mm-hmm. and, and solving. And whenever... They, the response is, I don't know. That's where you have an input of, okay, well, let me, that's what I'm here for. Let me help. 
you know, how, yeah. what are things that could be helpful? And then I think one of the things that we do is we start listening for what we call a motivational interview, interviewing change talk, mm-hmm. language that suggests that they're moving closer to being ready to make a change. So okay. if, if you think about change, think about, I'll just give you like a quick example. If you're looking at change for yourself, so you want to start being healthier, right? Initially, it's like, yeah, I really want to get into shape. And that's where it starts. <laughs> I, mean, I right. just, I wish I could just snap my fingers and I would be in shape. Yeah. And yet, you know, we know that not much change happens at that point. Right. But then there's the next kind of level where, all right, I'm starting to think about why do I need to be in shape? What's the motivation for that? So why do I want things to be different? And then we kind of move into the stage of, all right, I've set my mind, I'm going to do this, but they still haven't done it yet. They just are more convinced that it's possible to do, you know, and then you go out and you get your running shoes and you get your exercise stuff and you're like, all right, I'm going to do this. But then sometimes that stalls and we go Mm -hmm. back to, okay, I have it. I'm going to do it tomorrow. Right. And what you want to do is kind of shift them a little bit closer to, okay, actually having a plan, actually taking some steps and doing things. And so you can look for some of that language that suggests that they're in those earlier stages where they're, they're thinking about it. They have a desire to, to see a change in, in the relationship or the interaction between them and their dog. Um, you're looking for, do they feel like they have the ability? Like, I know what I need to do. I just need to do it. Right. I understand what you're telling me and I just need to do it. That's that's not necessarily going to create change, but it's a good place to start because at least they're motivated to that to that level. And then you start looking for what can you do or say to help them to make a commitment. And sometimes that is just, okay, what I hear you saying is that that you're really concerned about the people that are living in your home because your dog becomes scared and and bites, right? Yeah, And so what I know that you're feeling like there's things that you could do, but you've not really been able to get yourself to do them. How can I help you to find some things that you could do? And then what will happen if you don't do anything? And then we can kind of play out those scenarios and then look at, okay, so what are you, what do we need to do? What would be the first step? And sometimes it's breaking things down. You know, when we've practiced something a lot, we get pretty good at doing it all at the same time. But when mm-hmm. we're teaching it, we have to remember what it was like when we first started to learn it. Right. And even though all of the behaviors that we're asking for are simple behaviors, when you put all those simple behaviors together, they become complex. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, talking to when clients are frustrated, talking to them about, do you remember when you first got behind the wheel of a car? Yeah. How many things you had to keep track of? And then with practice, it got easier. Yep. And so let's break it down, maybe helping them with, the pro- with, you know, if you're trying to get, get them to hold the leash and hold the treats and get them out and not have the treat right in front of them and keep their hands behind their back and what, what's their voice supposed to sound like and, you know, maybe taking some of that off and just have them do in one step. You know, we're very good at that with dogs. We break it down into the smallest increment that we can so the dog can be successful and then we turn around and Ask patients here, do these three things simultaneously. <laughs> right, right. And so I think being able to help give them to recognize that, recognize where they are on that, that level, the, the contemplation towards change, the stages of change, and then being able to give them skills at, at a level that they can take them in 
and knowing that when people are under stress, their ability to learn complex information goes down. So we want to make sure right. we get them in a kind of the optimal. We don't want them bored, but we don't want them too stressed. And we want to give them simple things that they can accomplish, stack them, build them up. Right. Can be really helpful to getting that confidence. And you said it's, it's that difference between confidence and ability. If we, right, if we right. can address both of those things, we can help people feel more successful and be more successful. Yeah, that's great. And again, we're really good at setting dogs up for success. Maybe not so great at setting people up for success. So, so I could easily spend the rest of the <laughs> podcast talking to you about just this, but I do have some other things uh, that I wanted to get to because the other thing that comes up is dealing with some of these very specific family and client dynamics that really are outside of the scope of what our job is. Mm -hmm. And yet they're happening in front of us and we have to respond in some way. Mm -hmm. um, we can't just, you know, well, we could ignore what's going on, but I would argue that's still a response. Right. And so I was hoping we could talk a little bit about some of those scenarios that come up and how dog trainers might address them. So and, I, and again, I'm going to start just pulling from some of the questions I got from students. So one of the things that I had on my list that I wanted to ask you about is dealing with clients that are openly hostile. And one of the questions I got was, how do we stick to policies, especially regarding refunds? Although it could be anything, but this might be one that comes up a little more often or cancellations when the clients get confrontational. And she asks, she says, so many people often advise, I would just refund them so you don't have to deal with it or get a bad review. And she's wondering what your recommendation is coming from your perspective as a psychologist and sort of what do you do when people start getting confrontational with you about basically about your boundaries, I guess, you know, whether those are policies or something else. Right. Well, I think one thing that we, we sometimes forget to do is make sure that we're clear up front mm -hmm. what our expectations are, what our boundaries are. And that can be in the realm of the you know, financial, but it can also be in terms of our time. And so I think one thing that, you know, that we always do in therapy with people is we talk about set, we set up the expectations. So we talk about confidentiality. We talk about the limits of confidentiality. We talk about payment. We talk about what to expect when these things happen. And, and I think that's, those are not always comfortable conversations to have. But I think, mm -hmm. first of all, it's important to make sure you've had the conversation that it's not just written on a form that they initial. And that's what I was just going to ask. Is that good enough? So you have to actually verbally have the conversation. Yeah, because if you, ver you know, I would, I would do both. I would have it, right. They've, they've acknowledged that you talked about it, but I've, I would also talk about it and just explain, you know, it doesn't have to be a long drawn out explanation, but just this is, this is the way I operate my business. Because I think sometimes we do care so much about the dogs and we do care about the, the relationship between them and their human. And people forget that the, the other side of this is this is a, there's a business aspect to this that you know, right. we're, have put in a lot of time and effort to, to get to this point and compensation is something that, that's expected. And then also being careful to set and maintain boundaries as far as how can they get a hold of me at what, you know, how, what's the best, yeah. best way to do that, when, what hours, so you don't get two o'clock, 2 a.m. rounds. Right. <laughs> and so really having that conversation up front can mitigate a lot of that. When it comes to the conflicts, 
I would kind of go back to first wanting to make sure I understood what, what the concern was, because sometimes there's misperceptions about they, they feel justified in their behavior mm-hmm. for some reason. And right. so trying to figure out whether it's something legitimate, like, you know, perhaps they've mistake, mistaken something that we've done, or maybe we've made a mistake. Um, you know, we, we forgot to show up at a time that we said, or we right. wrote it down wrong or, you know, something like that. I think it's important to, to really talk to them and make sure that we understand if it's more of, if it's a situation where they just feel kind of entitled not to do it and there's nothing that you've done wrong, I mm-hmm. think I would, I would weigh the options, you know, what, what's likely to happen if you, if you confront them and what's likely to happen if you just say, okay, this is how it's going to be. And I've done both. I've had situations where I've talked to them and said, you know, this is the agreement that we had. And, you know, it doesn't sound like there's anything in particular that you're upset about. You just don't want to honor it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, you know, can you tell me more about that? Can you help me understand your thinking? And then there's some that's saying, okay, this is, I understand what you're saying. I won't be taking referrals from you again, you know, or I won't. We'll, we'll discontinue this relationship. This isn't working for us. But it, it, I think it's important to, at the very least, get as much information as you can and, and set yourself up up front. Because I, I really do think once what tends to happen is when we throw in something that surprises them, even though it shouldn't have surprised them because they signed it, right? <laughs> that's where we get frustration from them. Yeah. And that's where conflict comes in. So you can kind of mitigate some of that by making sure that you've had that conversation that they really do understand kind of an informed consent approach to, to doing the services. And, you know, informed consent's not a form. It's a conversation. That makes a lot of sense. And then it sounds like you're also saying, you know, if you feel like you've kind of done all the right things and the client is still upset that just, you know, holding your ground. Mm-hmm. And and maybe sort of just accepting that they may be angry, at, right? At like sort of the fallout, and and for me, and I will tell you, this took a very long time for me to learn. <laughs> but for me, in those situations where you have to hold your boundaries and the client is going to be angry at you, I I have found through lots of my own therapy that as you hold those boundaries, as hard as it is at the time. Ultimately, what happens is you have more energy for yourself, but also for working in your business. And if you're, if you're very frequently giving up those boundaries that you have, I mean, you know, examine your boundaries and, and make sure you think that they're really reasonable and that they have a purpose. But if you do feel that way and yet you keep giving up those boundaries, then that ultimately is going to impact our ability to help animals because we're going to burn out faster. Right. Right. Okay, so another situation that frequently comes up is we may find ourselves dealing with a family that is having to face a decision, like a very difficult decision. You know, maybe they have to think about rehoming a dog or even even if it's not something maybe that extreme, maybe they're just looking at having to really seriously change their lifestyle in order to keep the dog. And that is often accompanied by some measure of grief. And I'm wondering if you have any recommendations for sort of 
dealing with those situations. So one of the specific questions was cases of comparison between a new addition to the family with the late animal. So, you know, this dog isn't what I wanted. This is not the animal that I thought I was getting. And they're devastated by it. And what is our role as a professional? Like, how should we respond in those situations? Because sometimes, you know, especially with clients crying in front of us or arguing, you know, like there's, and maybe I'll just throw both of these (laughs) into the same question. You may have one family member that's saying, you know, this is worth it to me to go through all this. It's worth it to me to be able to keep this dog. And the other family is saying, well, it's not worth it to me. And then sometimes they will argue right in front of us. So how do we do, because recognizing that we're not therapists, right? So we can't really get into resolving their, you know, marital conflict or their whatever emotions that they're having. How can we respond to those situations in a way that's sort of professional and supportive of the client? Well, I think, you know, when you, especially when you have two people that are at odds with what they think, I think you can still kind of go back to listening to what they're saying, rephrasing it or summarizing it so that they feel heard. That's the first piece of it. And, you know, sometimes what happens is they're trying to make themselves heard by the other person and Mm. and they do what's what's common for all of us which is instead of listening to what the person's saying we're we're planning our response and so you can be that person who can just listen i wouldn't necessarily say that let that go on for long periods of time but you know kind of stop them and that's one of the things that's difficult we we don't like to interrupt people but you know saying let let me make sure I'm, i'm hearing what you're saying summarize it and then turn to the other person, let them have a chance to have their say, summarize that, and then kind of the next step. Okay, so how do you want to handle this? And that might be, let's end the session for right now. Um, Mm -hmm. Sounds like you have some things that you need to figure out between the two of you. It might be that you can find a compromise that they couldn't see because they were only listening to their side of it that you might suggest. Yeah. Um, And it might be that you need to just remove yourself from the situation if they're not able to kind of get regroup. I, I think changing expectations is important. A lot of times expectations are, are out of line with what reality is. And so yeah. being able to help them to get more appropriate expectations, you know, a new dog is not, is, is a new dog. It's going to be, even if it looks very similar to your old dog, it's a new individual and helping them to, to recognize that you can still you can grieve the loss of one and still cherish this new individual that you have in front of you and find different ways to appreciate their their uniqueness and you know being able to help make that shift i think is helpful i think when you get into the the conflicts where they're arguing with each other and it turns into something that's way beyond <laughs> right. like what it started out as um, yeah sometimes it's good just to call a timeout yeah you know Let's hold on. This is getting a little, you know, this is getting a little off track. Let's take right. a few minutes and just regroup. Sometimes can help people. You know, we often get very emotional. And when someone, someone calls it, we have the ability to stop and reflect. And, and most okay. people have that ability. And if they don't, that's going to give you some information about what you're going to be able to do anyway. Right. Right. Yeah. And so, and that kind of, so I have two follow-up questions to that. 
The first one is I have found, I, I no longer work with clients, but I have found myself in several situations in the past where I'm working with an aggressive dog. It's the initial consultation. The whole family is there, including the children. And it's becoming more and more clear to me <laughs> as we go through the consultation that there is not a way for this dog to be safe in the house with the children. And the kids are there. And, you know, they varying ages. Sometimes they're quite young. Sometimes they're teenagers. Sometimes they're somewhere in the middle. And I don't, I don't know if you have a good answer for this, but do you have a recommendation for how to handle that situation? Because what I've done in the past is sort of like I try and like, <laughs> this is probably not the best way to handle it at all, but sort of telepathically communicate with the parents that I have something to tell them that they might not want the kids there for. Um, and, and usually they kind of pick it, you know, or, or I might say something like, you know, maybe we should talk with just us for a little bit. But that's always been a very uncomfortable situation for me that I really don't know how to handle because I don't want to say like, the parents may have some inkling that that's going to happen. And sometimes the kids do, too, honestly, but sometimes they have no idea. And and I don't want to be the one that like drops that kind of bombshell on a kid. So what what would you recommend in that situation? Like, how do we handle that when we have this sort of dynamic where there's a really difficult conversation that we have to have and children are present. So in, in your scenario where the dog wouldn't, the dog could potentially bite if yeah. they don't do something. I think my first approach would be to probably not through telepathy, but try to, <laughs> but, but it's, you know, suggest to the, the parents that maybe we need to have a conversation just between us. If there are the, there are some parents that would be, okay and able to do that and you can kind of get a sense that they'd be able to to ask their children to go someplace else mm -hmm. um, but and those ones usually aren't the difficult ones it's the ones that seem to be a little clueless as to what you're trying to get across to them right sometimes what i have done is make a request of the child could you you know that will move them out of the room to the place yeah. that i want them to be or i'll give them a task to do that Okay. requires them to concentrate and, and maybe suggest that they go sit someplace away from us to mm -hmm. be able to do this task. And, and, and that way they still feel like they're included. You know, could you go and get me, you know, could you go and gather up some of the toys that your dog has so I can see what kind of things he's playing with, you know, or could you go outside and, and gather the ones that are outside because I really need to look at those and why they're yeah. out there then have that conversation or more explicitly say, these are things that I didn't think your children needed to hear, but that right. you do need to hear. Okay. You know, and those are situations where you probably need to be kind of, your time is limited because if you sent the kid right. on an errand, it's coming back. <laughs> right. <laughs> so right. you have to kind of be to the point with them and, and help them to recognize the, the seriousness of it. And I think that mm -hmm. that's also where you get some of those conflicts where one person recognizes the seriousness and the other person doesn't. But I think being, being more blunt sometimes needs to happen. Yeah. yeah. Particularly if you've not been real blunt in other situations so that they know that this is a, this is different. This is right. someone who's always blunt and, and right. we, can, we can weigh it with that lens. But this is someone who usually is pretty accommodating who's saying this is not safe. Right. You have, you know, and I would, I would give them, I would give them the potential harm to their children, the harm to themselves, the harm to the dog, 
you know, lay it all out pretty quickly for them. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's very helpful. And the other scenario related to this that has come up, unfortunately, more than once, not a lot, but more than once is again, working with families, being in a situation where I feel like there's a bite risk to the kid. In fact, more than once there has already been a bite to the kid and the family is not following the management recommendations. And and this was one of the, the questions that was posed by one of my students as well. It was sort of, what do you do when, when you've had that conversation with the parents already and you've said, I think your dog is likely to bite your child and, and either the dog can't be in the house or you know, they can, but you need, you have to implement these management strategies. And of course, this doesn't always just apply to kids, but I think it's more complicated when you have a minor involved and the parents are literally endangering that child. Do you have any recommendations in terms of, I mean, you're in a little bit different position, I think, because you're probably a mandated reporter. <laughs> Dog trainers generally are not, but it, it's still a situation that we sometimes come across. Yeah. I mean, and I would probably because of the mandated reporting, I would I would have that as part of my initial situation. You know, if if I witness these things, right. I, I'm mandated to report. But you know, just because you're not mandated doesn't necessarily mean it wouldn't be something that you would want to do. Right. You know, if you see if you see some someone that's in potential danger, you can stop. But then the likelihood of what you're worried about happening is going to increase. Right. And so having that conversation up front with them can be, you know, and like I said, these are things you don't think about when you start out because I know I think everyone's just going to be like, you know, I want to help my dog. Show me what to do. And right. I'll do <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> you know, I if if there was risk, I I would want them to, to know that, you know, I'm looking out for you and for the dog, because if the dog if your dog bites you know, maybe it's bit their hand this time, but next time it could be their face. Right. You know, you you could have shown services on, you know, dealing with mm-hmm. this. You could have the dog warden, depending on your, your location. There's a lot of different things, different agencies that can get involved. If, yeah, those are, that, that's a tough situation. Yeah. yeah. It really is. So, and if you've not, if you've had, if you've had the conversation up front, at least you have that to go back to. If you haven't, you know, if, if you're, if you're not able to do or you're not willing to do the things that I think are imperative to keep your child safe, there's nothing I can, there's nothing I can do to help you. You're right. And, and if, if you can't help, it's not really ethical to continue to, to take their money and keep seeing them. So, I mean, I think that that's the only thing you can do at that point. But if you've had the conversations up front and you've kind of explained it, then if you, see something that you feel like really needs to be reported. Because I've had a situation, I was working with the child at the time, but it was with the dog that the, the child was getting bit repeatedly. And wow. they were not putting any management in, in place. They were resistant to getting a trainer to even come in and do a consult consultation to find out what they could do. And right. they were resistant to getting rid of the dog. And, mm. You know, because because we'd have the confidentiality. I'm like, this is this is one of those situations where I need to. Right. I'm going to need to do something. I ended up having to call children's services and just make the report. I don't know that they did anything other than come in and basically they were kind of the teeth to my. This is what's this is right. a bad outcome you're going to have. Right. But yeah, it's definitely not an easy. It's not an easy conversation to have, and it's not an easy position to be placed into. Yeah. And, and again, as you said, I don't think 
we, you know, when we decide that we're going to become dog trainers, we don't anticipate that we're going to be dealing with these situations. Mm -hmm. And, and we have no training at all in, in how to deal with these situations. So the last one that I want to talk about, and then we'll maybe wrap up with something a little bit more positive <laughs> is, and again, this is something that I have had trainers tell me, you know, I've had multiple trainers give me examples of situations where they've been in, that are kind of a, a crisis situation. So I've had multiple trainers say that they've gone to a client's house and the client is drunk. I had an, another woman tell me that she went to a client's house and the woman was talking about hurting herself and she ended up calling 911. I personally had a client who, you know, was talking about things that were clearly not based in reality. Mm -hmm. You know, you start getting into these situations. It's like, if you have concerns about that person's ability to make good decisions and follow through on the training and also there's like personal safety. So like, how do we deal with those situations where, where there's something going on with that individual that is placing them or possibly ourselves in danger or at least creating a situation where it makes it really problematic to work with them, either for protecting ourselves or for ethical reasons? I think the bottom line is that we, we don't. If yeah. the person's not in that position to be able to learn, then we aren't doing them any favors by pretending it's not there, you know, or ignoring right. it. But that being said, how, how do you go about doing that? I think right. if they're in a situation where, you know, in the case of you know, being intoxicated, I think there's some things that you can, that you don't want to do. You, you don't want to go into the situation being judgmental or ignoring it. I think you have to just be upfront. Have you been drinking? It sounds like maybe, you know, right now is not a great time for you to have this appointment. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and depending on how long you've been seeing the person, you know, what kind of relationship you have, you might just, you might end it at that point, or you might just reschedule at a different time. Right. If there's danger, I wouldn't try to do anything to intervene other than call the appropriate people to come in and intervene. Right. Which with, you know, you can, you can always call 911 or the police and have just a well check. Right. That way, if they come in and they find that there's reasons that the person's a danger to themselves or someone else, they have legal authority to do something that you don't have, you know, and you may not have the expertise or the, the knowledge even of the system to even know what help to get them. So I don't think that the dog trainers have to, you know, catch up on all the laws of mental health. <laughs> I think, you know, those are those are good situations to say, let me call for some help. Yeah, I'm concerned about you. I, I'm, I'm, I don't want to leave you here. I would call for some help. Once somebody arrives, you step out and let them take care of it, and they can go from there. But yeah, those those are uncomfortable situations. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, it hasn't. Again, it hasn't come up for me a lot. I, I really can only think of one time in 20 years of working with clients that I was in a situation that was kind of like a crisis in that way. I think of another situation where there was definitely some things going on with the client that were making me very uncomfortable, but it wasn't quite that same intensity. So, all right. So let's just pivot a little bit. We don't have a ton of time left, but I, I hate to end things on sort of a downer. <laughs> so what I wanted to ask you about is what do you have some recommendations for what dog professionals can do to sort of 
you know, take care of themselves emotionally so that we can prevent burnout and that they can continue working with, with dogs and, and helping them. Because I think, and, and this may be sort of, you know, a standard response, you know, self-care and all of that, but I, I, I think it's important enough and people struggle to do it frequently enough that it's worth revisiting again. Well, I think one of the first things that people need to do is just be aware from themselves of what some of their symptoms are. Like, how mm-hmm. do you know when you're starting to get burned out? Because yeah. if you aren't aware of the symptoms, sometimes it can snowball um, right. pretty quickly. And, you know, everyone's different. So for some people, it's they get phys- physical symptoms, headaches and stomach aches, and other people can't sleep or, or you know, start withdrawing, don't want to go out and do things that they used to like to do. Yep. So being able to, to notice that pretty quickly is important because the faster you address it, the, the easier it is. And it, I think the same things that make somebody a good dog trainer can also make it very difficult to stop and take care of themselves right? because there's that compassion for, for animals, compassion for people. And sometimes we don't set the boundaries that we need in order to be able to do that and still maintain some, some healthy um, outlets for ourselves. Being able to compartmentalize, I think, is really important so that it doesn't bleed over into your everyday life. And, you know, we are good at that in some situations. You know, we go to work and then this is work time, this is home time. But a lot of times work bleeds over into home and the things that you're worried about continue. So I think, you know, even just kind of a reflections at the end of the day, you know, or using the drive from your from your last appointment to your house to do you time to reflect about, you know, what went well, because we do yeah. tend to focus if we could have a hundred successful things and one thing not go as we plan and we'll yeah. obsess about the one thing. I think spending some time thinking about what things have gone well, what am I grateful for in, in this reminding yourself of what are the things that you wanted to accomplish and where you've been able to be successful, I think are important to be able to help just energize you again for those because we're going to have those days where nothing goes right or something right. happens that's really out of, really kind of puts a, a damper on things where you're like, man, am I even making a difference here? Right. And I think being able to to set, step back from that emotionally and think about where you are making a difference, you know, focusing on those positive things can be really helpful. And, and like I said, we tend to be as people that focus in on what what we need to fix instead of What are all the things that are going well? Delegating, you know, Mm -hmm. I think is important. Sometimes we we feel like we're the only ones that can do it. We need to do it all. I think that's important, being able to know your own limits. And and to remember that what you're able to do is going to vary from day to day. You know, your best is going to look different from day to day. Sometimes your best, you're just firing on all circuits. And other times it's like, okay, the best I can do is survive and right and then and that's okay and it's normal i think can help and then you know always just the basic things making sure you're getting enough sleep making sure you're eating healthy mm-hmm. you're getting exercise i've worked with a lot of people that in their jobs they um they forget to eat because yeah. they get so busy going from place to place or even you know then it's okay to take time up to go to the bathroom i yeah especially people who you know who are working at shelters i think this really mm-hmm comes up you know it's just magnified in that environment right because it's every 
every situation is a potential situation to pull at your heartstrings. Right. And there's got to be some way that you can step back from that because it's emotionally draining. Yeah. And it's, you, you got to keep in mind that self-care aspect of it is the more, the more you're giving and giving and giving, the more you need to replenish in order to continue. Right. And I think that's why catching it early is really helpful because if you don't, sometimes you don't have the energy to give back to yourself and you're just like, you're pouring everything out, but not pouring anything back in. Sometimes just taking a, a short break, taking a day off to just do something different and then, you know, finding ways to relax. And that looks different for different people, but meditation can be really helpful. Just doing deep breathing exercises or being mindful of, you know, what's going on in your own body can be helpful. And, and, you know, if that doesn't work, talking to, talking to people. One of the things yeah. I think happens with dog trainers is that unless we're in a shelter environment, we're often isolated. Yeah. You know, we're working in our own business for, you know, without having necessarily a lot of support people or, or other people who understand what we're going through. And so reaching out can be really helpful just to talk to someone to realize you're not the only one that's experiencing it can be very useful. Yeah. And of course, I have to recommend or put out there that therapy is also something that can be really good <laughs> sometimes. Yes. And and my personal opinion is pretty much everyone can benefit from therapy. I've been in therapy off and on, but mostly on since I was in high school. And it is. It's life changing. We're a society that if you went to the doctor for a physical thing, no one would think twice oh. about it. But right. it's a mental right. thing. All of a sudden it becomes... You know, oh, there's something wrong with you. And I think that if we if we could get to the point where we recognize that all mental health is physical health, because mm, you don't yes. your brain, it wouldn't have the stigma that it it often does. Yeah. Well, that's great, and I I really love what you say about catching it early and being aware of where you're at, because again, that is something that it has taken me years in therapy <laughs> to sort of feel like it's okay, you know, if I'm working and I, and, and as a business owner, right, you have to be very disciplined. And also as a graduate student, you have to be very disciplined. And because there's no one sitting there saying like, you have to do this now. I mean, kind, there's some deadlines, but mostly we're on our own. And so I try and stick really closely to my predetermined schedule. And there are days where it's just not working. Yeah. And I'm like, I just can't like, you know, usually I'm pretty focused and, and solid, but there are days where I'm like playing on my phone and like petting the dog and, you know, you know, I'm like, oh, I need to go like, you know, run the dishwasher right now. And, and then I keep coming back and it, I, I really only just recently gotten to the point where I'm like, well, if I'm trying that hard to work, I should just take an extended break. Yes. <laughs> and then I'll probably come back and be so much more productive anyway. But that was not, not only was it not something that came easily to me, it took me a very long time to realize that that was an acceptable thing to do. You know, it's like, I can't do it unless I realize that it's like an option. Like it never even felt like an option for me. And then I started to feel like, okay, it's okay to do this. And then there was that extra work to like actually do it. Like you were saying before, right? What did you call that when you're Moving closer to being ready to make change. All in the stages of change. So yes. Contemplation. Yeah, change, change language or something. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so that's my personal journey and moving closer to making change about that. Well, I, I think we hold ourselves to such high standards oftentimes yeah. and we 
forget that our best is going to look different. Sometimes our best is a hundred and sometimes it's 50. And, and that's information that we can use, but it's not something that we use to beat ourselves up. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. it's a sign that, okay, I need to take some time. And yeah, I found the same thing where I can, you know, I'll be working on something and I'm so distracted or I can't get focused in, you know, and even just the time of the day, you know, yeah. there, you know, we have optimal times of the day where we work and what I've, what's happened is I've been able to say, okay, I'm not getting anything done. I know that I could get this done and knock it out in an hour if I did it yeah. at the, when I'm at, at my prime. So right. rather than sit here for three hours struggling with it, I'm going to yeah. do something more productive and I will come back to this when I know I'm able to do it, you know, and giving yourself permission to do that. Cause that's not anyone else saying you can't take care of yourself. Right. It's all <laughs> <just us>. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah. Well, thank you very much for coming on today. I know that people are going to love this interview and find it very, very valuable. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Research Bites podcast. If you enjoyed this content and would like to learn more, please visit www.sciencematters.llc.com for more information. You can also find the link in the podcast description. The website has information on upcoming events, as well as my monthly research webinars and upcoming courses. I hope to see you there. Thank you.